0: Hello, everybody. Um, This is Nick um, from the Keen Atomic. I'm one half of the hosts and joining me, um, as always, is my co-host, Danny.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Um, So this is uh, another bonus episode. Um, Quite a a sad bonus episode, really. Um, On Monday, the 6th of July... Um, it was announced that the composer Ennio Morricone passed away at the age of 91. Um, So as me and Danny were kind of talking um, and discussing his passing and his legacy, we both of us decided to use the podcast, you know, as an opportunity to talk about his legacy, um, a film that uh, Danny hasn't seen but I have, Um, that he composed, and then kind of give you some of our three favourite music pieces that he's written, um, which I can assure all of you that the choices of which were very, very hard to whittle down to three. Um, His legacy and his position in the world of cinema is 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 one of the all-time greats um without question um so yeah i we we have some kind of words to say uh, across across the today's episode um but danny has um something to share first before we start talking about the film
1: sure thank you nick so i i will start with an anecdote uh back in early 2018 when Ennio Morricone's farewell tour was announced I of course jumped up and down with excitement after which I sat quietly at my desk because I was at work queuing online for the better part of an afternoon to of course get tickets at the O2 Arena in London. Um, so I am one of those people who buys concert tickets first and then asks questions later so I got four tickets thinking that my friends would join me. Months later, the concert day approaches and every one of my close friends who was supposed to join me finds they have something better to do that night. Can you imagine? No comment. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I think it was a Monday night, um, 26th November 2018, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure if the whole thing was sold out. It should have been t- 10 times over, I think. But I did manage to sell two of the tickets. Third ticket was nabbed by one of my most reliable and yes, yet most unreliable friends I know (laughs) He was grateful for the ticket and I was grateful for the company and I got to see it. I had Very good uh, seats. It was one of those great um, Experiences the concert was almost three hours long most of it most of which was spent either sobbing or just crying my eyes out it was I think there were over 200 musicians on the stage at one time or another. A Massive choir. It was overwhelming. It was incredible. It was one of my favorite concerti- concerts ever. And that's saying something because I am one of those people who goes to gigs a lot. Or used to, anyway. <laughs> so the moral of the story, by the buy the concert ticket, just go and figure things out later. Like, who's going to go with you? Because everyone will... Well you'll find someone. Um experience music because you don't know when the artist might die. Although ninety-one heck that was quite a life. Um so yeah. Support the the artists because they rely on us. So yeah. I think what is so great about Ennio Morricone's music, aside from being everything you could ever ask for in a score. It's its power to transform. He has the magic touch. And if you don't like Ennio Morricone, if his music doesn't move you, you're not the sort of person who enjoys music or film or art. I mean, I'm not judging. There are people like that. But for the rest of us who enjoy those things, I think he was quite possibly the best. And not just because of his collaboration with Sergio Leone, Quentin Tarantino, Brian De Palma, and other high-profile directors. He has... I checked. He has 520 composer credits on his IMDb page. Wow. I, that would I, be an impressive yeah. body of work, even if it's, if it's just mediocre. But he consistently wrote music that was super, super good, moving. Um, I also found out that he loved talking less about his high-profile collaborations with Sergio Leone and Quentin Tarantino, but more about the, the sort of less high-profile uh, films that he did, um, Gino Pontecorvo and Giuseppe Tornatore. Um, I'm ashamed to say that I did not, I had not seen Chinao Paradiso um, before yesterday. So I'm quite excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, um, we had, we had, we had, when we were discussing films for like, the next kind of batch of episodes after our first 10 or 12, you know, Cinema Party, so it was in there as a film to talk about. Um, and I think it just, it got cut purely because we couldn't find a film that would do it justice in terms of matching it with. Uh, and after rewatching it last night, I stand by that. I think it's a very, very difficult film to have matched with another um, and when it was, like I said, when it was announced that Ennio Morricone had passed away, it dawned on me that this would be the opportunity to talk about cine- not only Cinema Paradiso, which is a film that is all about the love of the, the cinema and, and, and the love you feel in cinema whilst watching films and, 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 the associations you have with with watching a film it's also a chance to talk about in, in uh, an absolute amazing score um where there are quite a lot of reviews I've read of the film that have said that this is a this is a really really good film, but Morricone's score elevates it to great, and I think that's truly. What this film is—it's—it's a—it's a an excellent film. But what Eric Ennio Morricone's score does, it just elevates it that that one step further, and, and, it, and it shows like the power of his music can have on on film.
1: Absolutely.
0: So yeah, um, Cinema Paradiso uh, was directed by uh, Giuseppe Tornatore, uh, released in 1988. Um, I have a, a, a brief plot synopsis. Um, A filmmaker recalls his childhood when he fell in love with the movies at his village's theatre and formed a deep friendship with the theatre's projectionist. Um, It's worth first pointing out that we watched the director's cut, the 117, 71-minute director's cut, just just under three hours long. Um, So, yeah, Danny... um, what were your thoughts on a first-time viewing of Cinema Paradiso?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I was overwhelmed. So, the music, from the first second you start watching, it just takes you in its arms and just carries you into this world. Which feels, to me at least, felt so real that when things happen, they affect you so much that it's like you see your whole life flash before your eyes. Personally, I've always found stories that span lifetimes that talk about aging and just growing up and growing old and moving away. I found them very unsettling, which is why I think I've kept away from this film for so long. the passage of time in what I believe to be fairly like, rapid succession, like two or three hours, upsets me. It just it, it it unsettles me very much. So needless to say, I cried a lot. Um, from the moment Toto leaves the village till the moment the film ends, I I think I spent that hour and a half more or less crying. So thank you, Nick.
0: <laughs> that's, that's okay. That's okay. You, you didn't you didn't cry at the end of ET, so you know like this is.
1: I didn't cry. Well, you can't even. No. Okay. <laughs> um, I loved the direction, cinematography. Beautiful. It was. It was. I don't know. As a film lover, I I absolutely loved all the references. I mean, the film most of, the better part of the film takes place in a cinema, so you have posters from films. Uh, you have clips from films that you know and love and it just, it it made me very happy. Uh, and of course, there was Buster there all the time. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, the, all the scenes and all the posters and all the film references from ages ago, they just come at you in, in like waves of love. And the Kisses montage at the, at the end, it was just perfectly executed. And it was just, yeah, just... <clears throat> It was crying center center. Um, young b- boy Toto was super adorable. I loved him very very much. I think he was that little cute little face, and his friendship with Alfredo was most endearing. Yeah,
0: Sal, um, Sal- Salvat- Salvatore Cassio is the name of the the child actor that played uh, young, he young Toto. He was brilliant.
1: He was brilliant. He was super super adorable. I loved the film. It was so funny at times. I mean. The guy always waking up with, ah, the square is mine, I want the square. It just, I don't know, I liked how you had these cliches, but they were somehow worked into the story in a way that made them endearing and not boring. You had the super conservative priest, but he was so funny as well and you love him and it, it made me think of what i do in terms of researcher because i i work with like censorship and like the history of censorship and it just made me really like laugh out loud how he was censoring all these films like not showing kisses at all and how indignant everybody was and how they cheered when finally like the change of the guards took place and they allowed kisses on on the screen it was just brilliant um it was a great like overall community a great community feeling and i think that's what italians are known for and it just it makes you love them, love love them even more um it was a great lo- life story and a great love story on top of that uh so i found the film absolutely adorable and the music was just it it was like it, yeah like you said it elevated the film even higher and it just made it an incredible experience um and i have a question for you okay what did you think was alfredo right or wrong in keep, doing what he did
0: to keep uh to keep elena's secret uh, away from from toto um i don't know like the romantic in me says that he was wrong, but then the pragmatist in me is like, okay, he had a point because if Toto stayed behind and with Elena, then he wouldn't have ended up becoming the great filmmaker he was. He'd be so. So,
1: is um, art more important than love?
0: That is, that is kind of a question the film, the film asks, really, isn't it? Like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Um. I mean I know <laughs> it, what's what's really what's interesting with this the director's cut version is that the theatrical version actually excises pretty much most of the Elena subplot um we don't um so the meeting with adult Elena and then the finding of a note and the kind of like the teenage stuff going on like, that is that is not there. Like, think about it. The, the the normal theatrical version is just over two hours long. So, there's about a good 50 minutes that was removed from the film, which was pretty much the entirety of the Elena slug pot. And what that does is, if you don't have that in the film... I mean, Roger Ebert said that he found this version to be a lot more bloated and he said that he was that um harvey weinstein who was responsible for the 2 hour cut um was correct in you know getting rid of that subplot but i'm i i totally disagree um that what the inclusion of that whole the whole elena thing does is it just adds more weight to to salvatore's story and like like you said it 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 then creates the question of whether love is more important than art, um, and then it you know it brings more weight into Alfredo telling Toto to leave and to never come back, and then you see the impact of what you know you see what Elena does to Toto. Um, so it, I don't know what you would think of if, if, if the film didn't didn't have that. I I I I see this version as the the only version of the film because of the the whole thing with elena is so important um and on on top of that like if you if you didn't have the elena subplot you won't then have the repeated musical motif of elena's you know there's a musical motif that comes with elena and any, yeah. any time there's associated with love and if you don't have that then you end up losing the impact at the end with the kissing montage because Mariconi uses the Elena motif in that kissing montage, um, and it's just, yeah, I, I, I it's, I don't know what you think whether whether it's in. in yeah. I,
1: I kind of, I kind, I, I both agree and disagree with you. Um, to me, I don't know if it adds much more having Elena explain everything to Toto at the end. I do think that it makes you happy that finally they have kind of a a closure and you understand why he stayed single all this time and he never found someone. But at the same time, is it really true that there's only one person for the other person and, you know, one soulmate and that's it? Um, It's very romanticized. Um I kind of oh, I also agree with Roger Ebert. I th- I think I see where he's coming from. And I think it would have also worked and it, I'm sure it did um having less emphasis on an a story because Toto is the protagonist here and even if he had known about what happened he would still have made the same decisions.
0: I don't think he would. I think he would have stayed behind. The reason why he left, he left the, the village, was because Elena didn't meet him. Well, he thought that Elena didn't come to meet him. And... No, I mean, even
1: if he, even if he didn't find out, like never found out. That's what I meant. Even if right. he hadn't met Elena when he did later, it it, it didn't change anything in his life his art is art and at the end when he sees all the kisses yeah he knows now that elena still loved it for the whole like all along but he wouldn't have she was still off gotten married um i don't know i i kind of agree with alfredo at the same time i think maybe toto should have been allowed to make the decision for himself but then also you you've got the fact that he's a teenager and he's very infatuated and he can't think straight. But in you have to remember that in order to make great art, you have to make great sacrifices as well, so there's there's the balance of those two. And also, if he'd stayed with Elena, had he been happily married forever after?
0: No, that's... Uh, okay.
1: I okay. think... Um, I wrote an article which I might share in the show notes about another Italian summer love story, and I can I can feel your eyes rolling in the back of your head, because you know what I'm going to say. Um, after we had the episode on Call Me By Your Name, I was pondering about the love story in that film as well, and in my article I asked the same question, like, is it realistic to aspire to a great love that lasts forever? is it feasible is it or is it just a romanticized inflated ideal and is the idea of great love always connected with just it being short-lived only a summer and then it won't you know all the ideals aren't to last forever because it's not possible so there's there's that as well
0: I'm to I got. I gotta try really hard not to say anything. But, um, <laughs> I. I know. The the, I know. The, the 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 love story, the the love and the the loss between Elena and Toto is so much more powerful for me than. I'm not other. comparing. I'm not comparing. Uh, okay. Okay.
1: Let's not compare it. Let's it's just compare. the idea that it's because it was. It was so intense for sure. Sh- for such a short period of time would have would it have worked if it if it it gone further than just the summertime yeah because basically elena and toto was were, were together just for a short two months and then disappeared no, they were separated but yeah quite a lot of um loaded questions in this film and i loved it um, um it's it It was a great film
0: yeah I, I, I'm i not sure
1: I'm yeah
0: I was, there's there's so many like little bits in the film that kind of grabbed me um the so the 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 mum for example like so heartbreaking for me um like at the beginning she's like I haven't you know we hasn't been home in 30 years and you know she's constantly trying to ring him and stuff and then you know you see the flashback and you know she's i wouldn't say she's she's cruel to toto she's not she's just like she's grieving because she doesn't want to accept the fact that her husband has died you know in in the war and you know she's trying to raise two children one of whom is you know leah is is implied to be sick all the time um yeah and obviously toto is is quite a difficult child (laughs) um you know, I don't like,
1: think he he can be seen as difficult because he's very curious and he's very intelligent.
0: Yeah, that's I think that's what I meant. Like you know, not difficult in a bad way. Just like she just didn't. He's know just yeah. He's he's quite hands. Hand...
1: He's a handful.
0: Yeah, um, and then later on, when adult Salvatore, you know, sits with his mum at the table and you know he says to her that you know I didn't see you as I saw you as an old woman even back then I didn't see you as the beautiful woman that you were you know like
1: I know that made me cry very very and I was like
0: I was like oh I just wanted to pick up the phone and call my mum you know (laughs) um Mm. so yeah like it it, I'm actually tearing up a little bit um (laughs) Yeah, that's what I mean. That this film kind of just has this effect on me. Um when I first saw it was in my second year of university, um, as one of our in one of our classes, and I was the only person in that class that week. It was just me and the lecturer. Um and I spent the entire film but I completely forgot I was sat in to S606 in UE in French eh? and I was transported to, to Italy and and I was completely caught up in the story and I, I was so, at the end of it, I was relieved that I was by myself with the lecturer because then only one person would have seen a guy who's 28, 29 bawling his eyes out um, and
1: it's hard not to cry in this film. It's I think. it's very it's, it's very it's... hard,
0: yeah. Um like some like in there's this whole kind of subgenre of films about films and I think this is perhaps like the most nostalgia driven and sentimental of them. Um yeah. like we spoke about uh, In a Lonely Place. When we spoke about In a Lonely Place we We talked about how Hollywood has a tendency of treating its writers really poorly. (laughs) Um, You think *Sunset Boulevard* in a lonely place uh, adaptation. um, You know, think about how you know eight and even eight and a half. Fellini's eight and a half, even though it kind of has this magicalness to it, it's always grounded in the um, troubles that he's having in his life. Um, all That Jazz, which we're going to be talking about in a few weeks' time, is the one of the most perfect films about creativity and about your life and creativity. Um, whereas this is so sentimental. Um, like, some people, I think, may see this as a negative. Um, I know some people don't like being manipulated into feeling things uh, when watching But I think this is the film's greatest strength, and you know, to to feel to feel these things whilst watching this film. Um, You know, we we feel the love and the care on screen. You know, all the little side characters as well. You know, we we come to recognise them. So when at the end we see them together, like there's there's one there's a couple in particular. There's there's one where they're watching the horror film and everyone's screaming and cowering their faces down <laughs> and it, there's this one there's this one bloke who's not bothered and he looks up on the balcony he sees a woman who's not bothered either and they trade looks and then the next time we see them they're sat together and then we see them again and they have a baby and then we see them together and they're old yeah
1: it's it yeah it's it, like the sense of community is is great you see people growing up growing old together
0: yeah um, you know, like, and they said the, the priest was perhaps my one of my favourite side characters because he was just <laughs> just so funny. Like, he was just ridiculously he was super funny. funny
1: with his bell. Like, no, no, this is not okay.
0: And it made, it made me laugh that you know when they finally showed the the kiss. And he's like, I will not watch this pornography I will not watch pornography. And it's like you've spent so many years watching pornography on screen to censor yeah. it. And he was getting outrightly flustered by it and stuff. It's um Yeah, no, very, 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 very fun very good. Um Yeah, like the film it does it does show that cinema it has a communal like it's, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a mistake that the first time we see Toto, he's in a church, because you know it. It it, it that ju- the juxtaposition of the church and the cinema. You know it, it. It reinforces the fact that the cinema it has this communal, religious, spiritual, yeah, life changing experience, um, almost akin to going to church, and it it becomes it becomes that you know like. When the cinema burns down, they 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 mourn the fact that they're going to have nowhere else to go. Um, you know, for that to to go and see movies, you know, it's just an important aspect of their life, like some people have with going to church. Um. So yeah, the 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 ending and um, like that kissing montage is is kind of is it's up. It's definitely next to the ending scene of E. T. Um as. Uh, the end, an ending that just grabs me, pulls on my heartstrings, and then doesn't let go until I'm crying my eyes out, welling to the credits. Um, you know, I, I said in our E.T. episode that that ending completely destroys me, and this does as well. And I think that that's because of the score. You know, I think it's it is impossible to talk about the power this film has on me without mentioning how the score kind of builds up these emotions. You know, I spoke about the motif the Elena motif that we hear and that, you know, it's repeated through the film, we associate with love and loss. And then when Salvatore is sat in the screening room watching Alfredo's gift, you know, we, we end we end up feeling the love, the loss, the understanding and then acceptance that Salvatore is you know, he's undoubtedly feeling these things at that, that particular moment. Um yeah, the the kissing montage was just so. When I first saw that, I uh, I couldn't believe it that that happens because it kind of it, it 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 makes the film like an entire circle. It's like the yeah, best. It just it's brings the, up full circle. It's the best version of. I think of that's
1: Jack- the best of it. Yeah. Because yeah. It, you- you see that alfredo promised toto that he will get the films that have been cut out and then he does get them and that's the beauty of it
0: it's it's the ultimate version of chekhov's gun that you show something at the beginning and you make if you show a loaded gun you've got to make sure it's fired because there's no point of it you know being there otherwise Pretty sure I butchered Chekhov's gun, but if you you know what I mean, like he they they Tornatore shows the film strips and what they mean to Toto, and then just doesn't refer to them ever again until the ending. Um, and be, you know, but they're in,
1: always there. They're yeah. always hanging on the wall in the, in the projection room. They're they're always in the background. They're always. I mean, they're always there. You know that they're there. Um, and the fact that Toto has become a filmmaker, it just it makes it even more important. Yeah, and it makes sense. It just makes sense that he was to become a filmmaker because he just breathed cinemas from an early age.
0: It, it made me it made me laugh. Then um, Alfredo, you know, made the point that yo you can't have the film strips because I got to splice them back in again. <laughs> And then <laughs> Toto's like, what about these? And he's just like, yeah. well, sometimes I can't remember where they put in the film, so they're just there. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's lovely little moments like that. Um, and like I said, the friendship between Alfredo and Toto is just so powerful and, and so unique. You know, you find out these little parts about Alfredo's back, his life, and it becomes kind of obvious how much Toto means to him, Um and obviously Toto doesn't have a father either, so it it adds it's just so much more weight. And um, of course, it takes Alfredo's death for Salvatore to come back home, um, and be referred to by his real name again because you know somebody reproaches him in the cafe and says, "Oh, your doctor."
1: There's a new yeah. There's a name. Yeah, so he's name.
0: he's a different name, and then you know, uh. Sissio, I think his name is the guy, the Sissio from Naples, who won in the pools, um, who ended up, you know, funding the refurbishment of the cinema. You know, he refers to him as Signore uh, Signore di and yeah. he's like, "Why, why are you referring to me like that? You know, I'm Salvatore Toto." It's like he's come back home and he's almost reclaiming back his identity as that, as this person. Um, yeah, I so like. Upon my research for the film, usually I kind of go into, like, you know, making of stuff, that kind of thing, but I didn't want to with this. I It, it sounds there, like...
1: I, a, I don't think there's much point. I think it's just...
0: I didn't, yeah. This is yeah. a
1: standalone.
0: Yeah. It's I, something like you usually go into, like, you know, making of, you know, this cast member did this, this actor did that, and... Director wanted this, but they did something else, and all this kind of stuff. We ended up doing stuff like that, you know. But this, I just didn't want to because I don't want to find out. I want to know. I just want this purity, this film to stand alone, you know. Um. So, but doing some little bit of research just to have some actual stuff to throw out there. Um, I came in across, across an article from 2013 that was on the Guardian. That I'll link to in the show notes. Um, In said article about the film, there is a quote from Stephen Woolley. Um, He's the film producer behind the British film producer behind the Crime Game and the company of Wolves, among many many others. Um, So he says, "Cinema Paradiso is a movie about memory, and for our generation, cinema was a place to congregate, a magical place to let your imagination run free. The character of the cinemas of my childhood and youth were all different and special." Now it's all boxes, little long rooms. Every cinema is the same. They smell the same. They have the same character. The sameness is the central quality. It's like air travel. It used to be an occasion. Now it's a fast food experience. And whilst so whilst I kind of whilst there are many many great independent cinemas out there in this country in particular you know in Bristol we have the Watershed and the Cube um, come to mind. you He has a point, you know, when I go to the Multiplex to see whatever Marvel or Star Wars extravaganza that's out, I do honestly wish I was back at the 80s Art Deco inspired Odeon in my hometown. Yes, okay, the Odeon is a chain, but that building is so unique to my hometown. Um, And I kind of wish I was back there watching, you know just in the crappy seats, kind of, you know, back kind of hurting because the seat's a bit crap and, you know, the the screen's not quite right, but, you know, and, and the, the floor's a little bit sticky and there's still popcorn left over from the previous screening because they couldn't be asked to clean it up. And, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, the the little details. And I know I always said, like, Odeon is a chain. Yes, it is. But the, the, this particular cinema in my hometown was extraordinarily expensive <laughs> to see a film. It's like you know now it's like 13 quid to see a film whereas in the centre of Bristol you can see the same film for like 7 pounds um but it was an occasion to go to the cinema and for me um in in Taunton if anybody who's listening is from my hometown you know exactly what i mean about what the odeon looks like and the fact it's next to Hollywood Bowl and you had the McDonalds and it was always this occasion to go to the cinema um one of my kind of favourite moments of going to uh Il Cinema Rigivato in Bologna last year was the different cinema spaces that they had, all these screenings in, you know, each had their own kind of identity. You know, the room that I saw El Topo in with Nicholas Windenreffin in attendance was completely different to um the room that I saw um, like this South Korean film that had been made in the 60s with the director in attendance who was like 95 that traveled over from South Korea. Um, it, it's and yeah, all these kind of different spaces. And there is a romanticism that is kind of inextricably linked with Italy and not really just with Italy, just kind of Europe in general. Well, when I say Europe, I mean like France and Italy, I suppose. You know, there's a romanticism. Um, you know, and I think when you combine that with cinema, like in cinema, cinema priori, so, you know, it's just kind of just amplified tenfold, um, which Ennio Morricone and Giuseppe Tonatore knew all too well. Um, yeah, this, this film is, is just is so good. It's a masterpiece, in my opinion, and it just makes me want to go back to Bologna. Um, the Square, in particular, just reminds me of The Square in Bologna, um, where we sat and watched uh Miracle in Milan, and oh, there was something else I watched in the square. I can't remember. I think um there was something else I watched uh Los Olvidados, Louis Buñuel's Los Olvidados. That's why I can't remember it because I was really drunk watching it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, this, like sat in the square and watching the film. It, a, a communal experience, and it was just it's just religious almost so yeah that's kind of me done with cinema party so i i i don't really know what much has to say i don't know if you've got anything more
1: no um i i think yeah that's kind of sums it all up nicely i agree that there's something romantic about about italy and france And cinema, and the religious aspect of it is, of course, very much present in this film.
0: Yeah, I think I think an 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 interesting, I think maybe a film we could have matched this with on in hindsight um, is a Japanese film called Tampopo, um, which came out in 1985 from uh, Juzo Itami, Um, and that particular film doesn't isn't about the love of cinema. It's about the love of food, um, in particular, um, and it's kind of like it's a, it's not a spaghetti western. It's a ramen western, as many western critics decided to call it that. Um In that a guy, western. yeah, no, so yeah, it's a basically. There's these two truck drivers roll into town, and they go into this decrepit ramen shop, fast food shop. And the woman just can't make root noodles to save her life, and the guy <laughs> criticizes her, and she ends up asking him and his his mate to basically stay behind and teach her how to cook ramen. Um, and she ends up learning how to cook ramen, and it's, it's the film is all about love of food. Um, very almost pornographic in in some aspects with the way it shows it shows food. Um, there's a gangster character in particular that is bordering on, it, uh, no correction, it is fetish porn. Um, some of the stuff that happens, um, but it's a fantastic film all about the love of food and the way the film kind of shows that is almost is is exactly how cinema ready so kind of shows cinema. Um, so I think Tampopo will. will I, I'm going to try and get on the podcast because it is a fantastic film to watch, and I think it's a good film to talk about. You know, in this podcast when we talk about our love of film, for example. Um, so yeah, um, kind of using that as a segue, ramen western, spaghetti western, to um True. Ennio Morricone, um, and his kind of. I don't want to say tragic loss because he was ninety one, and that was
1: quite quite a life and quite a career he had. Yeah,
0: it's not it's not tragic though. It's not it doesn't feel tragic. It just feels like he has done. I
1: think it feels a, a, a it feels like a good reason to not not a good appropriate reason to celebrate his life.
0: Yeah, yeah, and like it's not it doesn't feel as though we've lost something. It does feel like we've lost something. But it doesn't feel like as bad because. He, like you said, he's had over 500 credits and as we'll come onto in a minute, you know, like his music, it diff- does different things and he's not just a one trick pony like some composers. Um, Absolutely. I was going to say Danny Elfman, but I kind of like Danny Elfman. Um, <laughs> let's
1: not point fingers. Just let's not point fingers. No, please. no, no,
0: no, no um so yeah we're going to we're going to try and do a like a top 3 or just a three chosen musical tracks or cues from Morricone's vast vast work um and kind of talk about this as well with kind of his legacy and kind of use this as kind of like a summation of our thoughts in particular about Ennio Morricone um, I don't know about Danny, but my choices were extremely hard <laughs> um I didn't wanna like I didn't Mind wanna go for the you. obvious I didn't wanna go for the obvious or the iconic though i think cup they are actually that's iconic the same, that's the yeah. um so yeah um I've, do you wanna go first
1: i'll go I'll go first with number three and then you'll go with number three and yeah
0: once we'll, do, we'll maybe, do that
1: yeah we can we'll do so i had a i had a long think about those five hundred credits because obviously i did not i don't know all of the music that he's he's done, and I've not seen all the films that t v shows documentaries he was also in, involved in documentary music as well, so obviously I've not done all that homework and I've used this top three as a homework for myself. Um, choosing three films that I have not seen. Um, However, these pieces of music were, they sort of stood out for me when I played some of, like, generic best-of soundtrack of of Morricone. Um, After seeing him at the O2, I went home and I sort of, again, looked him up, more and tried to listen to more more of his music that he made and there were a few tracks that stood out for me even though i didn't know where they were from because i had not seen the film so number three is a film that i had not seen which is called it's directed by sergio corbucci uh it's called i crudeli in in original title and it's been translated as the hellbenders released in 1967, and the piece of music is called Minacciosamente Lontano. lot of acoustics in it, and there's a lot of like percu- percussion. And I loved the fact that he he's so inventive with with his instruments, and he always tries to find different ways of playing them. And I think this is this piece is is illustrative of that, and how he tries sort of reinvent how he can play it, and how he can use the percussions and 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 the instruments in in different genres. And like you said, he's not one one trick pony. He just goes on and just Reinvents music what's your number
0: three i i don't want to say like number three downwards because it sounds as though i'm ranking them and i tried really hard not i yeah, don't think no I there's don't just think three can, picks it's yeah. just three picks um let's so, just say three three picks so first off i have chosen the piece entitled harmonica from once upon a time in the west
1: i love that one
0: So I had to choose a Leone western um but instead of taking any cues from you know the man with the no name trilogy I've gone for the grand from a piece from the grand sweeping epic of once upon a time in the west and the moment where Frank and his gang massacre the McBain family um Can I
1: just say something? Yeah. I, I love that film so much and I adore Henry Fonda and I, I think that's my favourite role of his as a baddie. I think he's just brilliant, brilliant choice.
0: I think we've spoken in the past about Henry Fonda's role in this film. Um, someone on Twitter uh, posted up, uh, kind of in link, when talking about Ennio Morricone a couple of, like, yesterday, um, they said that they should there should be another kind of sleazy not say sleazy western but a western with a sleazy villain played by Tom <laughs> Hanks which would oh, be Oh yeah
1: that it, that would be perfect.
0: It's it's the con- it's the contemporary version of Yeah of of Henry, Henry Fonda. Henry
1: Fonda. Yeah. Um
0: so yeah the this this so this piece you know as the gunshots echo the camera zooms in on the extreme close up and then you have him running and shouting and then you hear the footsteps clunk on the floor you know the guitar just twangs the the harmonica sings and frank and his gang kind of emerge from the desert like cruel hell-bent bloodthirsty demons and the music is so powerful in capturing that and it is such an introduction to the to frank and his gang and if you were uneasy about henry fonda playing the villain remember this is the guy that stood up in 12 angry men and and was the reason why the guy didn't get arrested you know put away in jail in 12 angry men you know he is the epitome <laughs> of of goodness in cinema if you have any doubt that he is the villain in this film the music does exactly that um so yeah that that's that's what I've gone for first. Harmonica from Once Upon a Time in the West. So your your second your second choice.
1: So like you, I found it very hard to sort of narrow it down to three. But I went for something that I hadn't seen, so I can actually go home uh, and watch these films. So uh, my second choice is from a film called Zvegliati e uccidi. Uh, which is translated as Wake Up and Die from 1966 directed by Carlo Lizzani um, and The song is called Un uomo Solo, which I think translates as "a am as a, a not lonely man or a man alone and I'm just gonna play it for a bit And it's it's got this super jazzy no to it so it's it's very seductive and it again shows how how anyone just doesn't shy away from just leaving his comfort zone and just moving into something else you wouldn't expect him to go to into jazz but he does he just and it rocks it it's very like melancholy but very sexy very very sexy sound What's your second pick?
0: So I have gone for the track titled Humanity Part 2 from John Carpenter's The Thing.
1: the thing too didn't he
0: um so this is a movie that scares me it's, <laughs> it's one of yeah it's it just scares me so much but it is a film that i can't help but rewatch um so john carpenter um famously scored most of his films but with this one he employed ennio morricone so a composer that that isn't known for horror um But what this track does with the synth and its beating bass is kind of capture the paranoia and the feeling that something is not right, kind of. It gets under your skin. Um, You can really feel the cold of the Antarctic listening to this, it is a really chilling chilling track and um Carp- when I saw Carpenter in concert um a few years ago he obviously played this and it's he played it obviously along with his other stuff that he's done himself and this was the only track that he performed that was written by someone else but it fits so well into Carpenter's uh work but it is so kind of unique to Ennio Morricone and it works so well with the thing um, yeah one of my one of my favorite films and a, a, a track that yeah really gets under my skin um, like none other so last one uh, what last have you got
1: one so I have a piece of music which has been used where it was composed uh, for a film called Madalena, nineteen seventy one. And then it was re recorded and released as a single disc of song in nineteen seventy seven and then it was reused for a film called Le Professionnel, nineteen eighty one, and the T V series Life and Times of David Lloyd George. And it's 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 a it's quite a lot of violins and it's one of my favorite it's very romantic and it's just i think yeah it's just it's quintessential and your morricone just gorgeous string music it's just very very beautiful it's called team Mai. And what what is your last pick?
0: Um, so it had to be the track titles for Eleanor from the film we've just discussed, Cinema Parody. so Yes. It just had to be. I I I I cannot add anything more to what <laughs> I said. previous Previous. Um, this song stirs something deep in me, and it brings me to tears, like perhaps like very few other pieces do. Um. So yeah, I'm just going to kind of play it. So that is um, us, kind of done with um, Cinema Paradiso and uh, Ennio Morricone, I suppose. Um, His kind of yeah,
1: what a body of work! What a great man!
0: Yeah, his his legacy is undoubtedly assured. Like when you think of cinema, and you think of cinema music, you know, Ennio Morricone has been and will always be one of the first names you think of. and when you sit down and you watch Good, the Bad, the Ugly for the thousandth time, or if you watch Danger Diabolic for the first time, or if you get blown away by the power of the Battle of Algiers, you know I know. Um, Morricone is there with you and will always be there and will always be his work. Um it always be him and it will always yeah it it's it is a, it is a very very sad loss um but like i said it doesn't feel like a loss because it feels like a chance to kind of celebrate the great man and let's not forget he finally won an oscar that wasn't an honorary oscar um like so many and other great Oh what a great
1: s- piece of work that was.
0: Yes. Um it made
1: i mean i'm not a big fan of Tarantino but that film he was it was made great by by Morricone's music.
0: Yeah, I I remember like Tarantino's obviously, you know, he basically picks and chooses pieces of music from various films and TV series across all of his work um or pop songs um in the case of Reservoir of Dogs. But what he does in what he what when 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 he when it was announced that In Morricone was was outrightly scoring The Hateful Eight and knowing that that film was going to be shot with the same lenses that were done with the mad mad world it's a mad mad world sorry um these ex- amazing long lenses and with the cast that was assembled and you know it emricone's school is going to be accompanying this and yeah the excitement and it did not let down and like i said it it, it finally won him the oscar that wasn't an honorary oscar like so many other greats before him have received because the, the academy is fucked up um yeah so he he finally won one which you can argue is perhaps you know because of his work body of work as well that you know Anyway, we'll we'll get onto the academy at another point, but um he won his Oscar and there's a fantastic shot which I used in my kind of um tweet response to Morricone's passing of him lifting the Oscar and it, it's uh you can see what it means to him and, and it's a really powerful thing to see and, and yeah. Cool.
1: Um if you got anything more to add
0: um no no i think i'm yeah um so yeah we'll be back uh in a few days time um with uh i've forgotten the films we're talking that we've got coming up what was
1: we've got sisters
0: that that's it no 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 big trouble little china because this is coming up for Big Trouble in Little China. Oh,
1: yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: so, Big Trouble in Little uh, China um, and The Bitter Tea of General Yang, which will be out this Thursday. And then after that, yes, spoiler alert, we're doing something involving sisters, but you have to listen to the next episode for, for, for you to know what those two films are. Um so yeah, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? And do you have any articles that you wanna kind of publicize and plug for everybody?
1: Yes, so I you can find me on Twitter at Kinojohn. My website is kinojohn.co.uk and I've like I said in in the podcast, I've I've written an article about what call me by name means to me, to the Exasperation of, of Nick who hates that film, and I've also written um, a film about Queen Christina, one of my favorite prequel films of all time. And yeah, we can share that in the show notes.
0: That's the Greta Garbo one that not, not allowed to read, isn't it?
1: That is the Greta Garbo one. You're not allowed to read until we discuss um, Greta Garbo on the podcast later on this year. Yeah. So watch the space, and don't even look at Greta Garbo.
0: I'm not even allowed to look at Greg Arvo. No, um, no. <laughs> so <laughs> you can find me on the internet. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Nick s Chandler. my website is supertomovision.com. Um, I don't really have anything to really to plug. I'm kind of just borrowing away on other things um, as I'm moving house in four weeks so that's kind of my job for the next <laughs> four weeks um yeah so it is uh honestly it's it's thank you for listening from me um oh yeah that was it um our gmail uh keenatomic at gmail.com drop us an email uh tell us what your experiences are with Ennio your or just tweet at us um on our twitter just you know let, let us know what what Marconi means for you and what your favorite pieces of music that he's done is I got some very interesting responses on on Facebook, um, actually. Uh, One of my family friends posted up a piece from uh, The Mission, um, which I then realised I hadn't actually seen, so I sat down and watched The Mission. Another friend pointed out a piece from Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, which then prompted me to sit down and watch Once Upon a Time in America. so yeah it did You've not
1: seen Once Upon a Time in America
0: I saw it yesterday actually <laughs> okay I saw the four, I saw the four hour version of Sergio Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in America um right. yeah so that's that's kind of it um so, so thank you for listening from me
1: thank you for listening from me too